0: Good morning. Happy Easter. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or how your mind works, but I've kind of always wondered why is it called Easter? Like what does the word Easter itself mean? And uh, the interwebs would have you to believe that it has to do with a Greek goddess of the same name and that uh, she represents fertility and spring and like new life and all things new. But there's not actually a lot of historical evidence to support that claim. You know what I did find evidence for? Well, before we talk about that, first I have to talk to you about Fancy Nancy. Uh, don't judge me, okay? I've got two daughters and a mother-in-law named Nancy, okay? So it works at our house. But fancy Nancy, if you're not familiar, she is a little girl with a larger-than-life personality who dresses extravagantly and uses really big words to describe the environments that she finds herself or the feelings that she's having. Eighty. Books worth eight zero books worth of fancy Nancy, but uh, she'll if you'll read one of the books she'll say something along the lines of, well, when I write my name, I like to use a pen with a plume, plume is just a fancy way of saying feather, or she'll say something like she's going through a debacle. It's a fiasco. She'll say fiasco is just a fancy way of saying disaster. And so you'll have to read more to, to you know, figure out your vocabulary and that. What was I talking about? Easter. Easter is where I'm going with it. So ch- here's what I found evidence for of Easter. Ch- check this out. This is Acts 12, chapter uh, chapter 12, verse 4. Says, then Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. Okay, now here's the same verse, different translation. And when he, Herod, had apprehended Peter, he intended after Easter to bring him forth to the people. You see, Easter is just a fancy way of saying Passover. Apparently, when King James got his 47 guys together to translate the Bible into English, they decided that the closest Germanic word to the Greek word Pascha, which means Passover, the closest word they had for that was Easter. Now, I don't know about you, but I appreciate the fact that we call it Easter instead of Passover. Right? Easter sounds way better than Passover, doesn't it? Like, if I was growing up and somebody, at my, you know, wanted to invite me to Passover, I would pass over that invitation. Come on, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you go to school and they're like, hey, you want to come to my church on Sunday? We were celebrating Passover. And you'd say, well, what is it? And they'd say, well, it's an angel of death killing the firstborn son, and there's like blood over doorposts and... Jesus became Passover. You're like, no, I'm out. I am not. I do not need that destruction in my life. But if you say Easter, that conversation is way cleaner. You invite somebody Easter, they're like, what is Easter? Well, there's like eggs and kids having candy and uh, there's a lot of music it's just gonna be really fun you're like yeah i can do that i can come to that so regardless of how you came if it was an invite if it was an easter basket if you saw us online or you just heard about the free breakfast i want you to know that i'm glad you're here This is a responsibility that I do not take lightly and hopefully that in our time together we can maybe clear up some misconceptions about what church is and uh, what Easter is and more specifically who Jesus is because he is why we are here this morning. And with regards to church, you should know that what you've experienced today is pretty much what you would experience almost every other Sunday. And so if you enjoy your time this morning, I would invite you to come back next week, and uh, I hope you can find your experience relevant and meaningful. Generally, during this portion of the service, what I like to do is take a book of the Bible or a topic that seems relevant, and then we spend four to six weeks exploring what God has to say about those things things, and we're kicking off a brand new series of messages called, When Pigs Fly. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, when pigs fly. In fairness, I haven't heard anybody say it in a hot minute, but what's kind of interesting about the phrase, when pigs fly, you can trace it all the way back in literature to the 1600s. Uh, The first translation was, uh, When the pig shall fly. Uh, Can you imagine sitting down to the next episode of Game of Thrones or Downton Abbey and one of the characters saying, I shan't believe it lest ye pig shall fly. Uh, That was my best English impression, so uh, that would be awesome if that happened. Uh, In Finland, they apparently don't have a lot of pigs. Their phrase is when cows fly, which sounds a lot like a Chick-fil-A commercial. Uh, my, My personal favorite is the French. Their traditional livestock idiom is when hens grow teeth. What? Like, I'll believe that when hens grow. I didn't know hen didn't even have teeth, but, you know, whatever. Uh, there's Super Bowl commercials, Simpsons episodes, pop culture references, all using the phrase, when pigs fly, and they use it to provide humor and scoff at somebody because they believe something could never happen. Uh, people use expressions like this to explain away what we cannot explain. And so instead of believing the unimaginable, we dismiss the unverifiable. And unverifiable is just a fancy way of saying miracles. People don't want to believe in miracles. And what I want you to know this morning and throughout this series is that miracles are happening all around us. In fact, despite what you've heard or maybe even believe, miracles are happening all the time. But you won't see them if you don't know how to look for them. And so we're going to explore in God's Word how we can look and see miracles. With that in mind, this series is about the miracles of Jesus. I believe Jesus wants to do now what He did then. So if you would join me in John chapter 20, that's where we'll be at this morning. And God is going to speak to us from John chapter 20. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, just look for some guys' names towards the back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it will go if you are in Acts or Romans. You went too far. Take a hard left. While you're getting there, it's worth pointing out that when it comes to miracles, in my experience, everyone wants one. Nobody wants to be in a situation that necessitates one. Because if you weren't in trouble... You wouldn't need a miracle, but I can guarantee you everyone in this room has the potential to be part of a miracle. We're fixing to read about a gal named Mary, and Mary was not expecting to be part of a miracle the morning that she woke up and is recounted for us in Scripture. In fact, the whole reason Mary is doing what she's doing and going where she's going is because she didn't believe that Jesus was going to accomplish his greatest miracle. But I'm preaching before I've even started reading, so let's go. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. This account in John is often criticized because the passage starts out by saying it was Mary who went to the tomb. But if you read the other Gospels, it says that Mary and a group of other women went to the tomb. And so people want you to say, well, you can't believe this. And if you can't believe this, you can't believe anything because Mary wasn't alone. There were other people with her, according to Scripture. And the reason I point out the fact that she says, we indicates that she was not alone. Uh, John is focusing on Mary throughout the whole text, and that's why he starts with her. But the text is all about all of the women that were with Mary that morning. Verse 3, Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Uh, This is important, of course, because uh, in case you're wondering who the other disciple is, the one who outran Peter, the one whom Jesus loved, it's John. John is writing about himself. It was just impolite in ancient literature to refer to yourself, so John was writing in the third person, and uh, that would be creepy if you would do that now in your own autobiography, but nonetheless, it happened back then. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the Scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Then they went home. This is perhaps maybe the most indicting and incriminating sentence in all of Scripture. It's my biggest fear for you this morning that you'll hear about Jesus, you'll have an encounter, you perhaps will believe, and then you'll go home. No difference made in your life, no real evidence of life change, nothing significant from how you used to live to how Jesus wants you to live. You just believe, and then you go home. verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. She didn't want to go home. And as she wept, she stooped in Stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to, saw, to, to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave him... gave them his message. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity now to come and hear it. We just ask you to do what only you can do and open up our hearts, open up our minds, give us eyes to see, help us understand how this can make a difference in our lives. God, above all, help us do more than hear these words and simply go home. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Throughout history, people have always been fascinated with death. Uh, More specifically, they've been fascinated with what happens after you die. Nobody really knows because... They're dead, right? And so, uh, but they all make different comparisons and speculations. The ancient Egyptians believed in an afterlife, and so they would prepare the bodies accordingly. They would mummify the bodies because they believed that the soul would leave the body throughout the day, and then at night the soul would come back to inhabit the body. And so they would bury you with food and money in case you got hungry or in case you needed to, you know, buy some new gear while you're out souling around mm <laughs> And uh, they would bury you uh, with people, sometimes people alive, would to protect your body. Um, they would, you know, that's not the short straw you want to draw. But uh, they bury the animals or, or whatever it is. The Sumerians believed in a netherworld, which is different from heaven or hell. Uh, you would have to traverse the netherworld in order to get to heaven. But in ancient literature, we find very few people actually making it out of the netherworld. Only heroes made it to heaven. Many Eastern cultures believe in karma and reincarnation, that you uh, somehow, depending how you live, get you know reincarnated, maybe you'll become a different person or a better person, or you might end up becoming an animal or something like that, depending how you live. Some people believe that when you die, you'll become a god, and that you'll inherit your own planet, and that there will be 12 virgins on your planet, which sounds like a stretch to me but you know like what's in it for the girls at that point i don't know they just that's what they believe and other po- people believe that nothing happens when you die you simply die and you cease to exist but here's one thing everybody agrees on No matter what point of history you came up in, no matter what literature you read, even in our advanced society here in 2019, everybody believes that when your physical body dies, your physical body stays dead. Everybody believes that because nobody's gone to the funeral at the point where the guy sits up in the casket and says, nope. Not today. Here I am. And nobody has visited the graveyard where people have dug themselves out and they find empty burial plots or, God forbid, happen to see somebody digging out. Can you imagine? Uh, And so everybody believes that when your physical body dies, it stays dead. We might disagree about what happens with your soul, but we all agree that a body that's dead stays dead. Which is why, despite being told otherwise, when Jesus dies, nobody sets their alarm to come to the tomb three days later, when He's supposed to rise. The whole point of them going to the tomb was to embalm His body. They fully expected to open the grave and see Jesus laying there dead. This is ironic, of course, because repeatedly Jesus told them otherwise. Mark 8.31 Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Not even a full chapter later. Mark nine nine. some disciples are uh, with Jesus when He's on a mountain. And Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus. Elijah and Moses, who are supposed to be dead, are having a conversation. And Jesus uh, says this, the passage says, "...as they went back down the mountain, Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often, often asked each other what He meant." Rising from the dead. One chapter later, Mark 10.33, listen, he said, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again could have given you dozens and dozens of passages where Jesus shows up and tells the people following Him, not just the twelve apostles that we're used to hearing about, the hundreds of disciples who are following Jesus all have heard that Jesus is going to be crucified, He's going to die, but on day three, He's going to walk out of the tomb. And on the day it was supposed to happen, nobody was there. Nobody had bells on. And here's what you can write down if you're taking notes this morning. You can know the truth without knowing the truth. You can know the capital T, truth, Jesus without knowing the truth that He came to this earth to die a death that was meant for you, to pay a penalty of sin, which is death, because we all earn death by sinning, but by rising from the dead, He defeats the curse of both sin and death. As I said earlier, my biggest fear for everybody in this room this morning is that you'll learn all this information about Jesus and you'll never get to know Jesus. And then you'll just go home like Peter and John. Because you can know the truth without knowing the truth. And here's what I find so compelling about this account in scripture and of Jesus, it was Jesus's enemies who remembered his words, not the disciples. In Matthew 27, 62, you can look it up for yourself. Some Pharisees show up to Pilate's office. Pilate is the Roman official who's in charge of Jerusalem at this time. He's ultimately the only one who can decide if someone gets crucified or not, which he agrees to, and they crucify Jesus. But it's some Pharisees, Jesus' enemies, who show up to Pilate's office, and they're like, look, boss man. Uh, This brother, Jesus, he claimed that he was going to die. And on day three, he was going to rise from the dead. But we all know nobody rises from the dead. Dead people stay dead. So what we're going to need you to do, Pilate, is put a squadron of Marines out in front of this cave in order to prevent some disciples from coming and stealing the body and making a ridiculous claim that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. So let's just pump the brakes on this whole Jesus movement thing and quelch the rebellion before it even starts and Pilate agrees. So he gets some special ops guys. They roll out a rock in front of the cave where Jesus has been buried. They put some liquid nails on that mug. Some you know big stretch cock because they don't want anybody getting in and they don't want anybody coming out when the reality is the enemies of Jesus had nothing to worry about. The disciples had no frame of reference for a resurrection, and they had no intention of ever coming to steal a body. They weren't going to start a rumor that Jesus rose from the dead. They were too busy asking, what does it mean to rise from the dead? Critics want you to believe that this whole Christianity thing is made up. By who? The people closest to him had no idea that this was even going to happen. They fully expected Jesus to die and stay dead because dead people stay dead. And they were not plotting to steal the body. They were too busy mourning. But for sake of argument, let's pretend like they were plotting to steal the body. And I don't know what you know about the Roman Empire, but let's just say they're not particularly hospitable. And so if twelve fishermen did decide with no formal military training to come and beat up some professional Roman soldiers. The squadron of Marines stationed in front of this tomb. Let's say they do that. Let me just tell you, they're not getting very far. Pilots sending in the Navy Seals and the Army Rangers and they're killing everybody. And this little rebellion that has started, it is getting squashed immediately and they would do the same thing they did with bin laden and just roll out the body and say nope there he is didn't happen furthermore grave robbers do not carefully unwrap a corpse and then leave grave clothes neatly folded behind In fact, with the presence of hundreds of pounds of spices laid in the crevices of the grave clothes, which is what they would do, so when they came back to embalm the body, it wouldn't smell. With all of those pounds of spices, it would be virtually impossible to unwrap a body without damaging the grave clothes. Put yourself in that scenario. You're a fisherman not a soldier, and you've just come by night to murder a group of professional soldiers, and you know in the back of your mind that Chris Kyle and Marcus Luttrell are in the background waiting to come assassinate you, and so with the adrenaline that's pumping through your body, with that knowledge in your mind, you're doing everything in your power simply not to stroke out and you're shaking and you're nervous and you're looking for everybody, let me just tell you, you're not going to take the time to fold up the clothes. Furthermore, if you're a guy making up a story, you're never going to think, you know what we should do? We should talk about how we folded the clothes. (laughs) You've never folded a cloth in your life. And yet they're going to find a tomb empty with clothes folded. That's absurd. But Jesus... The consummate gentleman walks out of the tomb, but before he does, neatly tidies it up and folds the clothes and makes it hospitable for the next guest. Because he's so courteous. My point is, nobody expected Jesus to do the very thing he told them he would do. Dead people are supposed to stay Dead. And again, my fear is that this information will come across to you as compelling and neatly crafted. And that pastor did a good job of explaining it. And you'll leave here believing and it will make zero difference in your life. And you will just go home because you can know the truth without knowing the truth. Here's the other thing I want you to jot down. Sometimes we miss what is because we're so stuck in what was. Sometimes we miss what is because we're stuck in what was. Some of you are missing the forest because you're simply staring at the trees. Think about it. Mary is so focused on anointing the body and getting done what she needed to get done that she missed two angels talking to her and Jesus standing right in front of her people say, well, if Jesus would just show up and talk to me, or if God could send me a couple angels that they could visit with me, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't, because you're just as busy as Mary. You're so focused on getting things done and getting that next sale and finding that mythical one and learning uh, about who I am and discovering my passion and what's my purpose and what's my destiny. And I better get my Enneagram number because God knows everything happens with that. And I need to give my kids what I never had and I need to make sure they're well-rounded. And so I need to have all these experiences and it has no, you know, bearing on who Jesus is and if we're going to make a commitment to him and how we're going to spend our money and how we're going to spend our time. It's all about getting them into college on a full scholarship or whatever it is that you're interested in, not them. You need me to keep going? Could have given you a bunch of examples on this and you're missing out on what is because you're stuck in what was or worse yet, hear me, what could be. Too many people think God loves some future version of them better than he loves the current one. And I always like to remind them, how many of your sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. And so God doesn't love you more now or later than he did way back then. He loves you so much then that he looked into the fullness of time and saw you sitting here this morning and said, I'm going to die for them and their sin, and their future, and I'm going to change their life. And we're so busy in our lives that we miss what is because we're stuck in what was or what could be. And when you fixate on your sin instead of God's forgiveness, it's easy to forget that you're a child of God, loved by the one true King, loved by the Creator, of the universe and there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He died for all people, but let's go back to our story for a second. You have Mary Magdalene, who's not a prostitute, by the way. Not sure how that rumor got started, but every time you read in Scripture Mary Magdalene, it's always qualified by Magdalene. And so when Mary, the woman of the night, comes to anoint Jesus' feet, there's no reason for us to believe that it's Mary Magdalene. It's just a person named Mary. But regardless, what we do know about Mary Magdalene is that she had seven demons cast out of her body by Jesus. And therefore, she quite literally owed Jesus her life. That number seven is important in scripture. It represents perfection or completeness. She was completely filled by demons and Jesus cast them out of her body. But she wakes up early on Sunday morning and goes with some friends to anoint Jesus's body, to embalm him, to you know celebrate his life and remember everything that he has done but when they get there he's not there and their first assumption is not whoa he did what he said he was going to do he's risen from their dead no their first assumption is that the romans stole the body and so they hurry back to the disciples and they say hey we went and he's not there somebody must have taken him but Peter and John, the heroes, what do they do? They say, oh no, they didn't. And they get up and they get their stuff and they run to the tomb ready to fight whoever took Jesus's body. But Peter, Peter hasn't done his cardio in a while. That <laughs> brother's got a little asthma or something. And John, John's been on the CrossFit circuit. He's ate all his macros that morning and he gets ready to, to go. To, if you have no idea what CrossFit macros are, God bless you. Don't worry about it. It's not important but he comes and even with all the muscles he's not brave enough to go into the tomb he has to wait for peter to show up and peter finally shows up huffing and puffing and sure enough he gone jesus ain't here and mary Mary's still broken up over the whole deal, so she follows Peter and John to the tomb. She probably beat Peter there as well, because that dude is slow, you know what I'm saying? Um, But the three of them, they are overwhelmed and perplexed and what could have happened and where did he go? And John would like you to believe at this moment he and Peter believe Jesus did what he said he was going to do, but I think that's a little bit generous on John's part for the simple fact that they just went home, and we know from the other scripture they decide that they're just going to go do what they've always done and start fishing again no real life change meanwhile mary's broken up with grief and she's distracted and she's sitting outside the tomb crying and so concerned with getting jesus's body back that she doesn't even recognize when some angels are talking to her every other time almost in scripture when you have an angel show up the people fall down on their face in fear and have no interest in having a conversation with an angel. But not Mary. She engages them in conversation, like they're the ones that took the body. And so she's not getting very far with them. She goes to leave, and Jesus decides to show up. And even then, in Mary's sadness, it causes her to miss her Savior. It's hard to receive what you don't recognize. And so Jesus, in a way that only Jesus can... Reveals himself to Mary And he simply says Mary Only says her name I'm inclined to believe That he did the same thing When he cast the demons from her body We don't have that story Recorded for us in scripture But I like to believe That Jesus showed up to Mary And saw the uh, situation That she had found herself in And he stared deeply into her eyes And simply said her name Mary, this is not who you are. Mary, demons come out and they obeyed the voice of the Savior. And the point I'm trying to make to you is that Jesus wants to do now what he did then and Jesus wants to do for you what he did for Mary. That tugging in your heart, that conviction that you sometimes feel, that voice that's speaking to you, That's Jesus' way of saying your name. Instead of saying Mary, he's saying, stop, follow me, quit doing that. This is where your life can be. Here's your purpose. Here's your destiny. And like Mary, you should fall down at the feet of Jesus in humility and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. If you're paying attention, you know that she uses the word Rabboni to describe Jesus. In Hebrew, they had three words for how they described it. Teachers, Rab, Rabbi, or Rabboni. Rabboni being the one of utmost distinction. And that is to say that Mary was confessing Jesus as Lord of her life. But she doesn't get it all right as we don't always get things right, because what's she do next? She reaches down and grabs a hold of Jesus' feet as if to say, yes, finally, I accomplished my mission. I found the body I was looking for. (laughs) Things can go back to the way they were before. What's going on in this passage? Jot this down. Jesus doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. Rather, he comforts us to make us comforters. Uh, what Jesus was doing with Mary to comfort her was not simply for her benefit so that she would stop crying, but rather he tasked her with a mission to be uncomfortable after he comforted her. He says, go back and tell my brothers, that's kind of crazy. Jesus isn't just your Lord a Savior of your life. He's also your brother. But he says, go back, tell my brothers I'm alive. I've risen from the dead. And I wonder if God isn't telling you right now to get out of your comfort zone. That he's tasking you with some kind of mission. This is kind of lost on us because we don't really understand the dynamics of women and how they were viewed in this patriarchal male-driven society. But women weren't supposed to say anything to men. Women weren't even allowed to testify in court because they were viewed as untrustworthy. And so the fact that Jesus tasks a woman with the first sermon ever preached after he rose from the dead is rather significant. Jesus says, go tell them I'm alive. And the message of the resurrection is not go rest, it's go get to work. We've got work to do. So let me point something out to you all as we get ready to close our time together. The reason that it's important that Jesus shows up to Mary because he could have shown up at any time. He could have shown up when Peter and John were there and he could have told them himself that he was alive. He could have just been chilling in the tomb when the women showed up that morning, you know, folding up his clothes, getting things ready. And uh, instead, he chooses to show up when it's only Mary. And she's not seeking a miracle. She's looking for a body. The reason it's important that God shows up, Jesus shows up at this moment is because Jesus often confirms things in other people. And a lot of you are wondering, should I do this? Should I not do this? And what you need to realize is that Jesus confirms things in other people. And you're praying for an answer and God's given you a person. And you might be that person that God's trying to use to compel somebody else to do something in their life. Or you might be looking for that person to help solidify something in you, which is why I'm so passionate about you getting involved in small groups and doing life with other people, because again, Jesus will confirm things in other people. He used Mary to confirm to the other disciples that he has risen. And again, what I'm trying to help you understand, if you're a Christian, God saved you for a reason. And the reason wasn't only so you could go to heaven. If that was the only reason God saved you, He would have taken you to heaven the moment you were saved. But instead, He's left you on this planet to accomplish a mission, His mission, the great commission, which we are on mission with Jesus to reach the world with the good news that He's risen from the dead, that He loves you and cares for you and wants to do life with you. And come on, somebody, can I get a better amen? Like this is the greatest news in the history of the world. You're made new. Yeah. You get to spend an eternity in a paradise with the Savior of the world. And is not sitting on a cloud with angel's wing and playing a harp and none of that garbage. It's new life. New planet. Perfect in every way. Spent in the presence of God. Certainly, the reason Jesus rose from the dead was for you. Because while you were Yet sinners and dead in your sin, Christ died for you. And He takes the sin away and He gives you new life. But the reason you're alive is not so you can hold on to Him in a garden. It's so you can shout about Him to the world. This is what Jesus wants for your life. That when you leave this room today, it's not so you can go home. It's so you can make a difference in loving people And loving God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to come and gather in this place. We're thankful for this message of good news that Jesus died for us, that we couldn't save ourselves, that we needed help. And Jesus is willing to step off his throne in heaven, come to this earth, grow up, live a perfect life, and die on a cross and thereby save us from our sin and allow us to be reconciled to you. As we continue to pray, I do not believe you're here by accident. I believe that this is a holy moment where God is speaking to every person in this room and he's saying something different to each one of you. And I don't know how you came into this place and I don't know what is in store for you for the rest of your day, but I know that God is trying to encourage you and help you and change your life and I know he's got something good for you and it might not seem like it now but God wants to be a blessing in your life and to some of you he's saying you need to forgive that person you need to make that relationship right and you need to stop doing this or you need to stop doing that you need to go to them you need to do this don't just go home today to others of you he brought you here this morning to confess him as Lord for the very first time that you've never heard this message before and he wants you to leave here changed knowing that you can spend an eternity with him and I want to give you a chance just to acknowledge that in your own life right now to say God I believe in your son Jesus that he died for me but he rose from the dead And because of that, I'm made new. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for living my own way. Your way's better. Now help me live for you. God, help all of us as we leave this place today, forever changed, knowing the best is yet to come. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.